Loss. It's funny how such a small word could have such a big impact on those who suffer one. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, coping with loss. From the loss of a loved one, to the loss of a pet, to the loss of a prized possession. At some point I took my gloves off and it must have just snagged on my engagement ring and it fell off in the street. Coming to grips with loss on Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. The holidays are a time for joy and sharing, but for some people, the holidays also mean confronting grief head-on as they cope with the loss of a loved one. Joining me now in the studio is Patty Donovan-Duff. Patty is the director of the Bereavement Center of Westchester. It's based in Tuckahoe. Patty, glad to have you here. Thank you. Also with us is Dana Emmerich. Dana is a volunteer at the Bereavement Center of Westchester. She once, though, went there for counseling herself after she lost her dad. Yes. Dana, good to have you here. Thank you for having me. How important is it to take time to grieve, Patty? It's really important to take the time after a death to pay attention to all of the feelings and emotions that you're going through, which are natural and normal, and seek support from friends, family, if you can, to express all those emotions and feelings that you have. Dana, how old were you when your dad passed? I was 15 years old. And what kinds of emotions were you dealing with? Oh, I was so angry. I was scared. I didn't know what the future held. You know, I'm still dealing with it 10 years later. still not sure what the future will hold, but every day is a, is a new process. Patty, is anger a common reaction? Sure. But I, I must say that it's a different process for every single person so that there's no menu of emotions that people should feel or when they should feel them. So some people might feel anger, some people not, might not feel anger. That's a very important thing to point out because I'm sure there are a lot of people who would say to someone, why are you feeling that way? Or you shouldn't be feeling that way. Dana, did you experience that? Actually, nobody really understands what you're going through at 15. You know, your friends have a normal life. You know, they don't understand what, what losing a parent's all about. So, you know, I was an outcast to begin with must be much more complicated for a young person to be dealing with a loss. Sure, and that's really one reason why we started our center 12 years ago was because there really wasn't such a place out there for children. Um, and we deal with children 4 to 18 in our treehouse program, and they get to meet other kids their age just like them. And that in itself is wonderful because children don't seek support or get support in the school playground necessarily. They don't want it sometimes because they don't want to feel different. They want they already feel different. They don't want to feel more different. So it's it's complicated as Dana can probably tell exactly. you. Exactly. Going to the treehouse, you know, you you're the people in your group are your sa- the same age. They segregate you into different groups of age and we all had similar feelings. You know, we had totally different deaths, but we had similar feelings and emotions about what just happened in our lives and you know, what we were feeling now, today, tomorrow, and the future. Everything was so similar, and it was great to actually have a common ground with people. I would imagine, Patty, for a teenager or someone who is even older, just talking it out can really make a big difference, getting it out. Articulating it, you know, and especially children and teenagers. And, And even teenagers sometimes don't know how to articulate it. It's a whole new world. You know, one of our kids said, uh, teenagers once said in a group, my world blew up when my dad died, uh, and nobody seemed to understand. I looked around at the adults, and they didn't know what to say to me, and I didn't know any other kids who had a, had a death. And honestly, if, if I 
did, he said, I probably wouldn't talk to them about it. But in a group where there's an adult, we have volunteers who are um, adults who, um, or young adults, Dane is one <laughs> of our volunteers now, who are there. Their presence is really important in the groups to kind of just keep facilitate the groups and re-validate. Um, I think Dana mentioned that. That's such an important part about the grieving process, too, that along the way that all of your feelings get validated so you don't think you're crazy. And that's that's something that adults say all the time. It seems like society only gives us so much time to grieve. Yes. We can only take so much time off work or off school, mm-hmm. and we have to be right back in it, right yep. back on top of our yeah. game. That's not fair. No. No. I mean, all of us, even at the Bereavement Center, in our um, HR policies, we have three days off after a death of a significant person in your life. And then you come back and you're cut some slack for a little bit. But, you know, we've, it even happens around in our agency. Um, you know, after a while, you're like, okay, let, I want the old person back. I want the person who was functioning very highly before. And grief is like a roller coaster. It's not an upward progression of getting better. You know, you can take 10 steps forward and three steps backward and two steps uh, forward and 10 steps backward. And so you're really, it's not, and that's scary for people too. You know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm getting better. It's not about getting better. It takes time. We have some phrases that we use a lot and one of them is, it's a process. It's not an event, grief. It's a process. You know, it takes some time. Dana, you were in high school when your dad died. What was that like for you? I didn't want to leave my mom home alone. You know, my, my, I have a younger sister, and my brother was in college. So I found myself staying home a lot more, um, not going out and enjoying the high school parties. And um, I would go to, like, the big things, the dances and stuff. But I stayed home a lot more and spent a lot more time with my family and enjoyed every day. One of the um, most common things that we hear from kids is they're worried that the other parent is going to die after one parent dies. Oh, yeah. So that's um, not uncommon that you not would be worried. Yeah. and. Um, and so you are protective, and very often kids do not aren't a problem for a while afterwards because they really they don't want to rock the boat. They want mom to still be okay. So sometimes kids are very more perfect right afterwards. It might be later on that it might be safer to fall apart a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is it okay for a parent to show deep emotion in front of their children? As long as they can make dinner that night, <laughs> I think. I mean, I think it, um, it's. How else are children going to learn how to deal with a loss if they don't le- learn from their the adults in their life that it's okay to cry? So I get that question a lot from parents who say, I, I don't know whether I should cry in front of my kids. And I'll say, you know, how else are they going to know, you know, what's going on inside of you so you can cry? But then you have to say to them, don't worry, mommy's going to be okay. And we can go to the movies tonight, and I'll make you dinner. And, and children, that's really what they want to know, is how, is it's gonna, how it's going to affect them and how their world is going to change. Right now, we're in the midst of the holiday season, and I'm sure a lot of people are questioning, do I go ahead with the old traditions, or do I start new traditions without that loved one there? Well, I, I think you got to do both. Like, we... Um... After my father died, he died in April of 97, and that Christmas, you know, we, we set up our Christmas tree. We did everything the way we used to do it, but we added some new things. Like, we invited some more, more friends over for the holidays instead of just all family, and it broke it up. We added, you know, there were new kids in the family, so that was great. When we put our Christmas tree up now, we, we always put my dad's picture, the ornament of him and, you know, his his little dove. We That's the first thing we put up on the tree. So we have our new memories and our new traditions to remember him. There really are no rules, and that's another thing we say to people all the time. It's kind of whatever works for you. Is there anything abnormal in the grieving process? 
I think when people get really stuck in places for a long period of time, and I'm not going to give numbers of time here because that's dangerous, <laughs> but um, you, when you know, you're just stuck in, in not being able to function, not getting out of bed for a long period of time, there are periods of time when you can't. And, um, but if you're not able to do the, you know, to go to work for a long period of time, if you're really not sleeping, if you're really, if you're in tremendous amount of pain, you know, that's when you really need to talk to somebody. How difficult is it, Patty, for people to take that first step to admit to themselves that I'm not getting along so well here and I should go talk to someone? It's hard. And, and it's funny, we were just talking about that today, that very often it's a family member, a friend who calls first and says, do you have anything for my friend or my sister who's really hurting? They didn't want to make the call. And so we'll usually send a brochure and tell them what we have. And, you know, when the time comes, they'll make that call when they're ready to call. Is there such a thing as going to the cemetery too much? Because I know someone who goes to the cemetery quite frequently and all of her friends say, you know what, you go there too much. Good question. No. I don't think any, I mean, going back to there's no right way, there's no wrong way. There are people who go to the cemetery every single day, um, not forever. And there are some people who would never go to the cemetery because that mean, that's too painful for them. It's, it's whatever works inside of you. And when we're working with people, we remind them to trust their gut, to trust their instincts, what's going to work for them. So if it's going to the cemetery and talking to the person, I worked with a guy once in a group. He was one of a group of fairly young um uh, people who lost their spouses, and he shared midway through the eight weeks of the group that he is a runner, and he'd run to the cemetery every day, and he'd just lie down on the on top of the grave, and that's the way he felt close to his wife. And then he looked at, he w- looked at everybody in the group, and the whole group went, that is so cool. That is so great. And he was so relieved mm-hmm. that he got validation that he wasn't crazy. And he probably hadn't shared that with anybody, but that's what worked for him. I'm sure he's not doing that now. <laughs> but I think, you know, but if that's if that's what helped him through that really painful time, you know, it may look crazy to a lot of other people, but no, I don't think that's crazy at all. Patty Donovan Duff is the director of the Bereavement Center of Westchester. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Also want to thank Dana Emmerich. She's a volunteer at the Bereavement Center, and she knows firsthand about how helpful the programs can be. Dana, thank you. Thank you. You can find more information about the Westchester Bereavement Center at thebereavementcenter.org. When a person in your family dies, friends, family, and coworkers are understanding. They send flowers and offer food and companionship. But when a pet dies, you may not get the same reaction. You might hear something like, why are you so upset? It was only a dog. Westchester County resident Mary Prenon wants to make sure people grieving over the death of a pet have a place to turn. After her beloved cat Justin died, Mary set up a support group through the SPCA of Westchester. She recently shared her story with me. Mary, you have a photo album here before you, and these are photos of your cat Justin. Justin passed away when? In March. He died of cancer. It was a, like a two-month battle and because uh, he was only eight years old. He had chemotherapy. He was doing well first, and then it just, you know got the better of them at the end. When did you and Justin first meet? Eight years ago at the SPCA of Westchester in Briarcliff. And I saw him in a little cage, and he was about two months old. And I fell in love with him and just brought him home with me. He was very shy at first, but then afterwards he kind of became the king of the castle here. (laughs) It's amazing. I'm just looking at his picture as a kitten, and he was so small. 
and then he just got to be like a little he's a uh, gray and white tiger kitten and he got to be a great big cat describe your relationship with justin oh okay well people are gonna think i'm crazy but that's okay because i'm an animal lover and sometimes animal lovers are crazy justin was like my son i don't have children and now i'm in an age where i'm you know too old to have children he was my child and he, you know, I took care of him like you would take care of, of a baby, you know, you'd feed him and clean up after him and hold him and play with him. And, you know, of course, the only difference is I could leave him alone <laughs> when I went to work. But other than that, he was just such a part of my life. Do you find that some people just don't understand that kind of relationship with an animal? I noticed that you had to qualify it. Some people think I'm crazy, but he was my son. I think people who are true animal lovers will totally understand but some people who may have not grown up with an animal or had an animal be part of their life will look at you like okay you know they don't get it they see it as just an animal do you have some other photographs in here of justin yeah now let's see well this here he's in a basket of flowers um that eventually were ruined but that's okay <laughs> he was a kitten here and uh here he is again in the flower basket. Here he is again playing with flowers. Oh, this is a great one. Justin liked to get into the um, dish cupboard. So he jumped up and there he is peering out of the dish cupboard. How important are those memories for you now that Justin's gone? Oh, they're really important because I can sit here and look at him. I mean, I always in my mind will remember what he looked like, but just to go back and see like the progression from when he was little. Oh. Okay, these are, this is where people are going to say I'm crazy. Justin's first birthday party with my friends, who my friend Mary here next to me is not a cat lover, but she really liked Justin. So we had a little cake and a little party for him. He did not eat the cake, though. Only the humans ate the cake. <laughs> um, here's Justin looking at pet mice. Here's Justin attempting to climb the Christmas tree. And here he is hiding sleeping. Oh, he loved the laundry basket, too. He loved getting in, especially when the laundry was clean. He would get in and just kind of <laughs> look at it. How hard was it for you when Justin died? It was devastating. You know, it was like losing a child. And, you know, all my friends were calling and, um, oh, God, I hope I don't start breaking down. But it was, um, it was really difficult. How did you deal with that loss, collect yourself. Mary, I know it's not easy. It's clearly still something that impacts you. How did you deal with that loss when you came home? Well, I didn't eat, which is unusual for me. <laughs> I just, I think talking to my friends, um, you know, I had my boyfriend and his mother here. Um, I had, thank God for Muffin, my other cat, Muffin, and, you know, animals sense something, and she knew something was wrong, because he used to fight with her every night, and, you know, start wrestling with her, and she'd, and she looked around, and she knew something was wrong, so she was, you know, a big part of helping me, she was, you know, coming up to me, and I was holding her, also what I decided to do was I, um, I had been to a bereavement group some months before my aunt had passed away, and um, they had a bereavement group at Phelps Hospital, which was very helpful. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could 
you know, go to something like this for animals. So I called around and, and I couldn't find anything in Westchester and the ASPCA in Manhattan had something, but living in Westchester, I didn't, you know, feel, and working in Westchester, I didn't feel like tra traveling down to Manhattan. So I decided to try to start a bereavement group here in Westchester that would be free for people. So I, I contacted the SPCA, which is where I got Justin, and asked them if they would be interested in hosting something like that. And they said, yes, they would be. I actually, through my vet, found um, a psychologist who was interested in donating some of her time to, you know, hosting the group and talking about it. So um, a few months later, we were able to start Justin's Club, which is, um, it's a pet bereavement group. And it doesn't matter what kind of pet. Um, most people have cats and dogs. But it could be for, you know, birds or horses or whatever. Is there a website that people can check out if they'd like to learn more about Justin's Club? Well, actually, they can go to the SPCA of Westchester's website, spca914.org. Mary, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, and thank you for um, making this, you know, people aware of this because, you know, so many people do have animals, and when they pass, people do go through a, a lot of pain. And I think it's really great that, that you're doing this and, you know, just bringing it out in the open and letting people know that it's okay. It's okay to feel such sadness for an animal because they are part of your family. So thank you. Mary Prenon shared her story with me at her home in Ossining. Losing a pet doesn't have to mean the animal died. Sometimes pets go missing. But that doesn't make the loss any easier on their owners. My name is Svetlana Kupperberg, and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Recently, um, I've lost my bird, and uh, it's an African gray parrot, and it's been three months. He was in a carrier at uh, Coney Island uh, by the aquarium. I opened the carrier, and he was nervous, and he just flew off. You know, I believe maybe a miracle can happen, and I can, I can get reunited with him. I feel like crying. <laughs> You know, and I was attached to him. He's, uh, he, I had him since he was a three months uh, baby, and I fed him, and I practically raised him. And he was almost seven, so the attachment is, uh, you know, very strong. You know, the animals they can feel that too. This is Cityscape on ninety point seven FM and WFUV dot org. I'm George Bodarki. We're talking about loss on this week's show. All kinds of loss, in fact, from the loss of a loved one to the loss of a prized possession. Earlier this week, Cityscape producer Rashida Winfield hit the streets of New York City. She asked people to tell us about their losses. My name is Susan Catherine Withy, and I'm from London. The greatest loss I've ever experienced was my mother. I lost her, what well, must be 30 years ago, and it's still quite painful sometimes. But I thought, yeah, you just have to get on with life, don't you? But I think the only way over that is just getting involved in doing things. That's it, really. When I need someone to talk to, I feel a bit sad over different things. I think, oh, I wish she was around. My name is Mary Griffin. I'm from Manhattan. I lost a, a lighted magnifying glass. I have low vision, therefore I need it, you know, to read. 
and uh, it's difficult to read without it. I may have lost it on the uh, subway. I'm not really sure. My name is Cynthia Jones, and I'm from New York. All right, I lost my youth. <laughs> Do you know where my youth is? I want to be youthful so I can play kickball in the street. But, you know, I can find it again if I try. My name is Clarence Walter. I'm from the Bronx. There's nothing I hold on to. We got to accept reality. Each individual accept loss differently. Me, I just move on. These things happen. I lost a lot of things. You just got to let go, and you lost anything, anything at all. You will have feelings, and you will think about it. But in the latter end, they all fade away, those feelings. Have you ever lost something on the streets of New York City? How about in the backseat of a taxi? A lost engagement ring is what the couple we're about to meet had to come to grips with. The antique-looking diamond ring went missing somewhere around East 59th Street and Lexington Avenue. My name is Samantha Tucker, and I'm from Colorado, but I live in Manhattan. My name is Jess Yacovetti, and I'm from Colorado also, and I live in Manhattan. I came up one day with my friend, and we were shopping, and uh, it was one of the first cold days of the year, and I wore gloves that day. And I've lost some weight recently, so my rings have been kind of loose. My hands were dry. At some point, I took my gloves off, and it must have just snagged on my engagement ring, and it fell off in the street. I was actually kind of hyperventilating there for about five minutes and crying in the street, and it was kind of embarrassing. I just knew, like, it's New York. I mean, and this is a really busy area, and I knew it was gone. So it was heartbreaking. (laughs) I text messaged him because he can't answer his phone at work, and I just said... You should probably call me. I have something to tell you. I didn't want him to get too worried because it's not dire, but it was pretty upsetting. So he called me when he had a chance, and I let him know what happened. (laughs) She was hysterical and sobbing and freaking out, and so I didn't know what was going on. And she's like, I have something to tell you. Oh, my God, don't be mad. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I had no idea what to expect. All these thoughts are going through my head. I was like, what happened? What happened? What happened? And then she told me, and... uh, all the things that were in my head were much worse than that. Like, it was still pretty bad, but it was almost like a relief. And then, oh, that does suck. <laughs> a day later, it's just a ring. I think it was more than anything what it represented. We had just moved to New York when he proposed. It was like our last $1,000 that we had saved up for our engagement ring. But it's replaceable. It's, it's a ring. And I don't know if it made us stronger, but we're fine. I told her I want to get her a bigger and better one, but it's going to take a little bit of time. Jesse Iacovetti and Samantha Tucker talking about their lost engagement ring. Jesse and Samantha are down an engagement ring, but they still have each other. Some people aren't as lucky in New York City. Storyteller Regina Ress shares a tale of love found and lost in a subway train. You drive me crazy, crazy, crazy for you, babe. Wow, Aerosmith is pumping into my ears through well-padded earphones so as not to disturb the private worlds packed into human shape around me on that subway car. Heading home on the D-train, settling in for that long run north to the Bronx, song mix firmly plugged into my brain. 
I've been a bad, bad girl, Fiona insinuates her way into my rocked-out mind. What I need is a good defense, because I feel, heaven help me, heaven help me, heaven help me, staring straight at me, sultry, darkly lashed eyes, topped by devil eyebrows. I draw my breath in and try not to stare at him. Oh, no. Oh, no. A bulky teen has placed himself between us. Ah! Found and lost so soon, my love. What I need is a good... Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Mm, slightly Soviet-shaped face, or is it the peaked cap? and trim mustache and beard. He's back in view, teen having slouched his way to the other end of the car, arms wrapped around his army green canvas bag, political buttons, well, I assume political buttons, clustered in one corner of the bag's flap. Hello, we've never met, but I was admiring your buttons. But the conversation is only in my head, mixed up with all the song lyrics. Now it's Julie London singing Cry Me a River. <laughs> love found, love lost, and sweet revenge. Crawl, sucker, come on and cry me, cry me, cry me a river. Woo! This music mix is really a great soundtrack for traveling the trains. Except when the Spanish gypsies turn up suddenly in the mix. Well, they're singing about love, too. But their style doesn't quite fit with the visuals on the D. <laughs> He's asleep now. The thin face slack. Is that an earring in his left ear or a Bluetooth? And what the hell does Bluetooth mean anyway? The D is now making that long, satisfying run up to 125th Street, Who's in Central Park, I wonder? Lovers strolling hand in hand in the fallen leaves. I wonder if they met admiring each other's political buttons. And overhead in the park, no doubt there are lovers finding each other or losing each other. And I'm underground, music-soaked mind wrapped in fantasy about some guy half asleep across the aisle. Worlds parallel, almost touching, unaware of each other. Oh, my God, now he's looking at me, chin in wool-gloved hand. Did he just wink? You wish. You wish. Last year. Last year, 1,944 New Yorkers saw something and said something. But not me. <laughs> not me, man, not me. Can't even say, hi, I like your buttons. A young teen jumps up with, Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, my name is M&M Peanuts, and I'm selling Maurice for my basketball team. While a Chinese guy with holes in his shoes shuffles by, muttering, Batteries, one dollar, one dollar, one dollar. 
while well, shaking an annoying, clacking toy, and several gang types shoving each other and spitting out unmentionable words take over the front end of the car, we have gotten to the Bronx, and craziness has broken out, and I, I am fixated on this sweet-faced guy and want to run away with him to a fantasy of peace and quiet where you don't have to see something other than the trees and don't have to say something except I love you and don't even have to say even that. I found the fantasy again. I lost the opportunity again. He got off at Fordham Road, and I continued on to the end of the line all the way to the Norwoods. Found love and lost love, lost and found, and lost. It's my D-Daily commute. It's my D-Daily commute. That storyteller, Regina Ress. Sometimes when you lose something, you never get it back. But every once in a while... My name is Mira Kamdar, and I lost my violin... I had gone to my daughter's school and received a kind of frantic call from her. And when I finally connected with her, she confessed that in the morning she had left the violin that she'd been using, which was actually my old violin, in the taxi that had taken her to school. And I knew that I didn't have any identifying tag on the instrument or the case. There was no way anyone finding it would be able to know who it belonged to. And I felt like I had lost a child or a close relative or even part of myself. Unbeknownst to us, the school had the violin. The taxi driver immediately realized that my daughter had left it in the cab, made a U-turn to go back to her school, and gave it to the guard. I just think that um, if you lose something in New York City, don't give up hope. Uh, It might just find its way back to you. Can't argue with that, thanks to violinist Mira Kamdar. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our producer is Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.